morning to you all. First of all, let's, um, I don't know, before we read the passage, uh, James, can we have the first, uh, first, first quiz question this morning? It may actually help. Can you just maybe drop the lights, the side, uh, yeah, I think it's the top switch there, please. James, is it appearing? Oh no, first one. So, first quiz question this morning. Can anybody name this place and where it is? No, apart from James and apart from Susie. It's not Cardiff. It's, not. it's, no, it's definitely not Cardiff. It's a bit further away than Cardiff. Anybody know where this place is? Sorry? It's Jerusalem. Well done. Yeah, so this is the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem. Okay, this is a medieval gate. So this gate was probably built in about the 1500s, 1537, during the reign of Suleiman the Magnificent. I, I don't know where they get these names. It's a bit like sort of wrestlers, isn't it? Um, this was known, so it's known in Hebrew as the Shechem Gate or the Lidda Gate. Um, and it's in, in Arabic, it's known as Bab al-Amud, which is called the Gate of the Column because originally behind this, there's a square and there was a big Roman column there. The Crusaders also knew this as St. Stephen's Gate because it is just very close to the historical place where St. Stephen was martyred, which we learnt about in Acts 7. So, James, can I have the next picture, please? So, does anybody recognise this gate at all? This is a more tricky one. Well, but actually, this top gate here, you've already seen on the previous picture. And here is also the Damascus Gate, but it is down level, lower. This is Roman era gate. So this is a Roman era gate, probably built after the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. But it was probably sort of 130, 131 AD, or CE, as we sometimes put, but let's call AD. So not quite around about the time of our passage today, which is probably um, about 34 AD. But there's also historical evidence in contemporary literature at the time of the fall of Jerusalem that there was a gate there. So this was the gate called the Damascus Gate, because it was the gate he would have taken to Jerusalem. James, am I working or not working? I am working. Good. So, Rome surrounded Jerusalem and completely destroyed it in AD 70 during the reign of the Emperor Vespasian. And so it's very likely that Paul would have come out in the passage today from a gate round about this, time, this place, going due north out of the old city of Jerusalem towards Damascus. And so that's where we're going to go today in Acts chapter 9. So James, let's um, blank this out, please, and we'll go from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 16. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. 
as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Father God, would you bless the word of the Lord to us today. Amen. So that's the history bit done. Well, that's not quite all the history bit. We'll be doing a bit of history later on indeed. But the Acts of the Apostles takes another twist today. In chapter 7, there was the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and that seems to undo or destroy or dismantle all the dynamic early growth of the early church. Chapter 8, which you had last week, then unfolds with stories of new growth as the apostles who were all dispersed then went out and went to Philippi and Caesarea, and you saw that areas around Jerusalem were began to be evangelized by the apostles and the, the first disciples. But we come today in Acts 9 to almost like a momentous, dramatic, I've used the word tectonic, is that okay? Tectonic shift in the life of the early church. Firstly, there's somebody who is not of the heritage of the apostles and the, and the first core inner core of disciples who is chosen by God to lead the church and take the message out. So that's the first dramatic shift, that it's, it's not some of the inner core. The second point is that it is somebody who is directly opposed to the message of the gospel that is chosen by God to go and be the carrier of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. And thirdly, and this is almost most scandalous, certainly scandalous in those times, to us, to our ears, it doesn't appear to be so. But he, this person who is a persecutor of Christians, who is not part of the inner circle, is chosen to take the message of the gospel, not to the Jews, 
but to the Gentiles. I quite often look at the complete Jewish Bible when I'm, when I'm preparing, and it says you're to take the message to the Goyim, those who are not Jews. In Hebrew today, if you want to, you know, the Jews talk about the Goy as a sort of nickname for anybody who's not a Jew. So if somebody, if you go to Israel and you're called a Goy, it is not a term of endearment, okay? It's a, it's a derogatory term. It's a term of abuse. And God is saying, I have appointed Saul, who was a persecutor, to take the good news to the Goyim, the Goy, the unclean people. Now, to the early hearers of the word in that day, that would have been completely scandalous. So scandalous that it was effectively unbelievable. And, but to us, it doesn't, it doesn't make any difference at all. But we, in a way, unless we have a Jewish heritage in our past, all belong to that category of goyim, of goy, Gentiles unbelievers, unclean people. And I remember, see, I thought I was a Christian. Yeah? And my two tests for being, for my Christian faith was that I didn't vandalize telephone boxes and I didn't beat up old ladies. Okay? It's, I know, it's really shallow. I know, but I'll hold my hand up to that. Yeah, I didn't vandalize telephone boxes and I didn't beat up old ladies. And that made me a Christian. And then I moved into a flat with four other guys. Gordon, Angus, Nigel, and Ian. And latterly, when one of them left, Jonathan came, who, was, who, who became my best man, and I was his best man. And they showed me what it meant to become a Christian. My eyes were opened, in a way, to the truth that Jesus had died for me. And I'd been to church every Sunday. When I was away at school, we had chapel every day. And it didn't make a difference. I thought my behavior of not vandalizing telephone boxes, etc., made me a believer, but it didn't. And I fully understood for the first time what it meant to be a follower of Jesus and what it meant, the significance of the crucifixion and then also the resurrection of Jesus meant. So, in a way, we're familiar with the phrase double whammy, aren't we? But this almost is a, like a triple whammy moment. In fact, there were probably two triple whammy moments really quite close together. Because the perceived religious status quo was being completely shaken and changed. Firstly, there was the resurrection of Jesus and this itinerant, unconventional preacher. Rumors began to go around that he'd been raised from the dead. And then there was the day of Pentecost and a whole load of uneducated, hairy fishermen suddenly being talk, started talking in other languages that people understood what was happening. And then lastly, there was the dramatic growth of the early church when firstly 3,000 people came to faith on one day. 3,000 in one day. And after the healing of the crippled man outside, uh, just outside the temple, up to 5,000 men it says 5,000 men decided to be followers of Jesus. 
And what's intriguing with me in this whole story is that the author of the book of Acts is Luke. Yeah? So he says this is essentially the sequel to Luke's gospel. And he begins to writing to Theophilus. Theophilus, this is my second bit about the growth of the early church. And clearly, when Paul, when, when Luke writes about Saul, Saul is not one of his favorite characters. Yeah? Because we read that Saul was approving of Stephen's death, um, that he was present at the stoning, he approved of Stephen's death, and then Saul goes house to house in Jerusalem, finding prisoners, finding believers of the way, and put them in prison. And yet, if you read on in the Acts of the Apostles, all of a sudden he, talking about Paul, who's now Saul, who's now called Paul, becomes we. When Paul goes from, Tro from Troas, modern-day Troy, to Philippi, all of a sudden it says, we did this. We did that. And Luke becomes part of the inner circle of Paul's traveling companions. And one would have thought, well, hey, look, this is what I would have done if somebody, if I suddenly thought, hey, Paul's a good guy. Paul's a really good guy. I might actually go back to the beginning of the story and somehow sort of airbrush. You know, we've got a big thing now of whitewashing and sort of going back and rewriting history to make it fit with our current story. But actually, Luke doesn't do that. He still doesn't approve of what Saul did in going house to house and pulling out Christians and then going off to Damascus to, um, yeah, to put people in prison. And to a certain extent, if you read the shipwreck account at the end of Acts, Luke is not explicitly saying, he doesn't say we did this, but there is so much detail in that passage that it's difficult to assume, but otherwise, that Luke was there on the boat with Paul as the ship in which Paul was being taken prisoner to Rome was shipwrecked on the, on, on the shores of Malta. There's so much detail there that Luke is there, but he doesn't look to sanitize the position. And it's almost another ironic thing is that Paul went to, to Damascus to make prisoners of those who followed Jesus, and yet he ends up in Damascus as a prisoner of Christ. Paul goes to persecute Christians, and he ends up being a persecuted Christian himself. And having, if you read on in the passage in chapter 9, he has to get lowered over the wall in a basket during the night because the Jews are there looking to kill him as he goes out of one of the gates back to Jerusalem. And so as a persecuted Christian, having become a persecutor of Christians, Paul himself becomes a persecuted Christian and leaves dangling over the wall. I said history wasn't at an end. I've got this marvelous book there. I don't know where you've come across it. 1066 and all that. Is anybody familiar with, that, with this book at all? One or two, thank you. So this is King John here getting very excited about the Magna Carta. Okay, I think he was less excited when he saw the Magna Carta. 
But I thought I'd just read a little bit from this, because this is one of these things I always reminded. It's to do with the Charles I and the Civil War in this play uh, here. It says, um, of course, there was the utterly memorable struggle between the Cavaliers, who were wrong but romantic. It does actually say romantic rather than romantic. And the Roundheads, who were right but repulsive. Okay, so the Cavaliers were wrong but romantic, and the Cavaliers were right but repulsive. And in a way, that's what Paul was doing, Saul was doing. He was right. He was absolutely right in what he believed he was doing. The law said that you should worship one God. The law of Moses was absolutely categoric, and Paul was determined to follow the law of Moses to the letter. He was a Pharisee, which is why he believed he was absolutely right in what he was doing. But he was repulsive in what he was doing. And can I just gently suggest, very, very gently suggest, that occasionally as Christians, maybe just incy-wincy, or one or two occasions, we can be right and somehow a bit repulsive at the same time. That there is sometimes we can say this is right and there is no other way that we do it, as it was, is now and shall be evermore, maybe. And we lay down the law and we don't allow for grace to take place. And can I just, well, I'm actually challenging myself as well. There are other things that I do and other things that I say and other things that I believe. Yes, it's important to stand by the truth. But actually, is there part of my behavior which is not conducive to in allowing other people to, to share in the joy that I feel of serving the Lord Jesus Christ? I was trying to think of, a, of an example about how to sort of try to get across, and you may be able to think of better ones, of just how to get across how momentous this, this event is in the life of the early church, and therefore in the life of our church today. Because Gordon and Angus and Nigel and Ian and Lethley, Jonathan, somebody spoke to each one of them and told them about the truth of Jesus. And then somebody told them and spoke to the life about the truth of Jesus, and somebody spoke to them, and somebody spoke to them, until they get back to Paul, Saul, who took the message outside the church so that the heritage of Paul can be traced back, I don't know how and I don't know where, but can be traced back to those four guys, five guys, who helped me in my journey of faith. And we have also, we, all of us, each of us, have got Nigels and Jonathans and Anguses and Gordons, and they may, they may be called different people, who will have a heritage going back to this moment on the road to Damascus, which has actually come into our language. Some people call it, you know, some people talk about a Damascene experience. Well, that's a bit too much for me. I have, to, I have to really have my teeth in if I talk about a, Dam a Damascene experience. But the road to Damascus moment we talk about. Yeah. But it's come into our language. 
because it's in a way, it's such a dramatic moment. You've got bright lights, you've got flashing lights, you've got a voice from heaven, and you don't know where it's come from. And as a result, Paul becomes, Saul becomes blind. But the really dramatic moment, the tectonic shift is that here is somebody who takes the message out to the Gentile world rather than saying you have to be Jewish to receive this message. But I was trying to think of an example in our 20th century terms about how dramatic this was. And the closest I've thought of, and you'll probably be able to improve on this, but imagine there's a rising star within the Taliban. Okay? And we're hearing stories today about the Taliban going house to house to find Christians. Just as we read in Acts 8 that Paul, Saul did, going to try to find Christians to drag them out and put them in prison or execute them. But imagine there's a zealous Taliban in a rising star within the Taliban. And he accepts Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Don't know how he does it. Maybe there's a flashing light. Maybe there's a voice from heaven. But however it happens, he receives the message of Jesus. And he believes that Jesus is his savior. That would be dramatic. But he then doesn't stay within Afghanistan or wherever and speak to the Muslims. But he actually says, no, I'm going to go to Southeast Asia, to all the Buddhist majority countries or whatever. And I'm going to tell them about Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah and put there's a little interesting phrase that God says I will send him to go to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel I will also show him how much he must suffer in my name people sometimes say yeah here's the good news to Jesus but there is actually going to be suffering there is going to be hardship and Paul, as we know, he was. He, he, talked, he talked about his testimony. He was shipwrecked three times. He was beaten with rods. He was imprisoned. He was stoned. All that hardship. And I'm grateful to Dinah for pointing out how much we have. But maybe sometimes we do need a little bit more hardship in our lives to be able to experience what it is to share in those sufferings. So can I just encourage you to just firstly think about sometimes, let's not just be repulsive sometimes. We can be right, but we can be gracious. And to be grateful for those who told us the truth of the gospel and be prepared to maybe push through and tell others about the fantastic news of Jesus the Messiah. There may not be bright lights and voices from heaven, but there will be the truth that you hold, which you can pass on to others. Heavenly Father, will you please bless us, encourage us, renew our desire to follow you and to speak of the good news of you. Father, help us to be gracious in the way that we let others see the truth of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. <laughs> Father, we want to be faithful to you, to walk with you, 
and to carry that good news of Jesus died, risen, and ascended to the rest of the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen. Amen.